0: welcome to the asian education podcast which is a forum for discussing research on education and related social issues in asian contexts it also seeks to provide asian perspectives on global debates over education policy and practice the Asian Education Podcast is produced by the UNESCO Chair on Education for Peace, Social Justice and Global Citizenship at Kyushu University in association with the Comparative Educational Society of Asia. In this episode of the Asian Education Podcast, we are joined by Professor Anita Rampo, former Dean of the Faculty of Education at Delhi University. I am Yoko Mochizuki. Uh, co-hosting this episode with Gairam Pame. Today, we will be discussing the ascendancy of non-state actors in education and its implications for the right to education. I have had the pleasure of working closely with uh, Anita while I was at UNESCO MGIP, first on a project to develop a guidebook for textbook authors to embed education for peace, sustainability and global citizenship in the textbooks of core subjects such as mathematics, science and English language. Uh, We also worked with her on a project to revise primary school textbooks in the state of Sikkim, uh, which is located between Bhutan and Nepal. Uh, So very warm welcome uh, to uh, Anita. Um, Thank you. (laughs) So you have had a very uh, rich experience as an educationist. And you have also had uh, a lot of encounters with uh, non-state actors. Um, Pratham, uh, one of the biggest NGOs uh, in India, has been uh, celebrated uh, in various UNESCO documents. Most recently, um, the Global Education Monitoring Report of 2021 embraced uh, their approaches to promoting uh, foundational literacy. So I would like to begin with this question. What has been your experience with uh, organizations like PLATAM and also their close collaborator, J-PAL? And what are the implications of um, the increasing uh, role of non-state actors uh, in education policy uh, in India? Okay. Uh, you know, i
1: just uh, initially start with the comment on the word non-state actors, mm-hmm. because this is coming in more recently. These are not terms that we have heard or worked with earlier. And uh, the GEM, the Global Education Monitoring Report, I think uh, very problematically clubs a lot of, almost everyone which is not the state is non-state actors. So the differentiation between the various people who may be working with the state, or pushing the state, or pushing towards privatization. Everyone becomes clubbed as a non-state actor, and that's a problem. So when I look at the comments they make, I find that very problematic, because they can be people with very different motivations working uh, with the state, but outside the state. And that's what we have done. In fact, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I have always... Worked with the state system, with the state schools from 1970 onwards with Madhya Pradesh to start with, uh, and uh, working very closely as voluntary groups. I mean that was 70s was the period which was really a historic moment in our developmental history when people with professional backgrounds uh, came in and then worked in the development sector as voluntary. Uh, Groups, So we didn't take any money from anyone, you know, and it was just getting space and some support and getting government, the public, the government to actually uh, accept what our role would be. And that was very different from what things are now. So I'm just saying that as part of that, we worked in the school system. And then uh, I was part of a a large organization which, uh, which was called the People Science, which is still called the People Science Network, And uh, then we, as an offshoot, uh, because in Kerala, which had spearheaded the Kerala Shastra Sahitya Parishad, which is a large body, uh, an NGO, a large uh, science activism a group uh, based in kerala has uh, and worked in environment worked against uh, uh, the uh, uh, silent valley project etc i mean we were collaborators with them uh, uh, all of us made a network after the union carbide gopal gas Disaster, you know, the major uh, industrial uh, accident or the massacre as that happened. Because uh, uh, my group that I'm working with was also based in Madhya Pradesh and in Ghopal. So, in that network, uh, when the found one of our leading lights of that, uh, Dr. Parameshwaran said, uh, you know, we can't work in in the development sector unless we work at a very, very basic level of literacy. And uh, that's how many of us who were earlier working in science policy, science activism, uh, watershed, w- health policy, education, et cetera, everyone w- got into a very Paulo Freirean approach towards adult literacy, which was not just reading and writing your name, but it was reading and writing the world. And writing by R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, as you know, I like to remind ourselves that that was the, motivation of working in a major, a very historic literacy movement in the 90s in India. And I'm saying this because this is linked with what is happening today. And that, in fact, uh, was so it was so decentralized completely that in the history of education in India, that was the most decentralized program where uh, even curricula and planning and, and the volunteers, everything was at the district level. You know, this was the first model in our country that you could do education in a decentralized, in a local uh, context with a lot of participatory interventions. Uh, So that was the 90s. And that, in fact, led... To a demand for school education. Because when adults felt that, you know, we can participate in a program which respects us, which is dignity, which is not sort of top down, and in which we are involved, and our motivations and our languages, and for the first time, various languages were used uh, for the program, they said, why not our children? So a major demand for school education came uh, from that. And in the late 90s, Pratham, was working in the adult literacy program in a very small sector in Mumbai, in the urban environment, because our program was much more effective and very widespread in the rural environment. As we can see, the kind of agency to work for your communities is much more in collectivist societies. And and, uh, I can, I mean, there were millions of volunteers. So it's a major program which gave us then agency and the moral thrust to fight for the right to education, you know, through the literacy program. The demand for this and the fact that the government was compromising on quality and the government was appointing para teachers and all kinds of fancy sounding names, but actually very low cost options for the poor uh, in the name of education for all, you know, in, the ni- in 1990, Education for all had come. And so for us, the literacy program was closely tied to education for all, which meant you can't forget the adults and the youth. And the youth were a major factor, which then uh, also pushed for uh, right to education. So I'm giving you this little history to understand where we were, where we are. And that Pratham came from that small urban mobilization, Mumbai-based mobilization, because urban locations were normally not as expansive and as voluntary as the rural locations were because the sense of community was very different in the urban sites rather than the rural and about 70 percent or 80 percent of our learners that participants were women so you can see that the way the participation through and the major thrust of mobilization was Kalajatha, which means a cultural true so song and dance and poetry was the major mobilization force for this uh, program. So uh, so that's where Pratham also started off and got involved with some of the uh, major actors who were supporting this from the government side. One of them was Anil Bodia, who was a very, very important person in the government bureaucracy, education secretary, but also from Rajasthan and very uh, sort of uh, a major person who, could, who spearheaded both this and was involved in EFA at the Jhontian uh, Conference. So I'm saying that kind of link with the government and that kind of uh, model to work with through mobilization, which was not what Pratham was doing initially, came from the People's Science Network, more importantly, from the
0: Kerala group. Hmm. It's really interesting to learn about the origin of Pratham so the remarkable rise of pratham as a key actor in education policy making in india this cannot be understood without talking about aser the annual status of education report which pratham started releasing in 2005 in fact uh, the global education monitoring report 2021 uh, uh, 2022 this report uh, cites aser as the world's largest citizen-led assessment
1: citizen-led assessments has come only in the last few years this is not what we heard then uh, but it was said to be volunteer-based uh, assessment uh so uh, so the motivation came from our 90s i work in the 90s but the nature of these assessments was critiqued by many of us in education. The quality of these assessments, the nature of these assessments—that you pick up anyone, you know. Literacy was different. People were involved in getting people to the centers, in doing things, in getting motivation, in actually doing projects on the ground. It was not just sitting in in a center and a classroom but doing your watershed harvesting, uh, doing uh, uh, looking at other other services, and also the same people were then involved in the polio vaccine, and you know, so the campaign mode came from there, from the 90s. But uh, Pratham started doing these assessments. Initially, it was, it seemed like it's just a kind of mobilization tool, you get people involved to try and understand what's happening, are children learning or not. But then it became very formalized in terms of these reports, and interestingly, because at that time, early 2000s, there was a lot of much uh, work that many of us and the, in the whole country, we were working towards the Right to Education Act. You know, that because it, there was a kind of a model that there was a, a proposal and then it was shared. So it looked like the government was not keen to push for it. But there were various, uh, on various quarters, we wrote with Jean Dres, I was part of the. Uh, probe report, the public report on basic education. That was also at that time in 1999, 2000. Amartya Sen had got his uh, Nobel Prize, so even that became a mobilizing method because he launched our report, the Probe report. And you know, I'm just saying that all this was being done because we felt that you can't now not have a right to education. You know, it can't be, you can't not have an act for that while we were doing this there was a very interesting divide in the government setup that we saw i saw it more apparently because i was also on a steering committee for ed- elementary education and literacy with madhav chavan who was the founder of pratham and i was with him on in on the planning commission in this uh, committee and i could see the differences and the different way he was trying to both do advocacy with the government and do advocacy with industrial leaders, leaders of industry, because they were getting a lot of fun from the corporate sector. So, so when uh, ASER started doing this, um, and uh, when actually the right to education came out as a, a, an act in 2009 uh, and in 2010, Pratham just tweaked. It's In fact, it's questionable because they kept saying that learning levels have declined after the right to education. And they actually opposed the right to education. Because by that time, we could see that the planning commission, which was supporting uh, Asar and supporting Pratham, uh, was was looking at it in a very neoliberal way. I mean, the planning commission, in fact, at one time, even tried to stall the ministry's right to education draft. So there was a kind of split between the ministry of education and the planning commission, where the planning commission taking a very, you know, Financial neoliberal uh, position, and I remember a very small group as part of a very small three member group, even talking to the prime minister at that time, saying that India is economically doing at one of its best levels. And if even today India cannot do this right to education act, we don't find this justifying, you know, a justified argument saying that where is the money, you know. So, uh, but the planning commission was saying this that. Where is the money, and why should it? prior should the government invest in everyone? And you know, this is what happened. For every year, if you look at the ASAR report, it was launched and inaugurated by the Planning Commission. So the divide then was very clear. And as I said, at that time, when a right to education was coming in the first decade of two thousand, the position that Pratham was taken was opposed to the human rights position and to the more humanist position that. Uh, Most other groups were taking as far as the right to education, so much so that when the right to education actually came. And uh, if you remember, uh, the ministry said no. And I remember I was part of some discussions and we said, no, India should not enter the program for international student assessment, the OECD test called PISA. And uh, there was pressure that you know India and we said we hardly there. I mean we don't even we are still struggling with an act a rights act. The uh, and very interestingly the ministry had written a note which said that if children fail it is our failure. It is not the child who fails. This is an official note with the government wrote which was uh, quite historic now from what we read. And they said that uh, that's why we are still trying to provide, we haven't provided the kind of an equitable, good quality environment for all our children because the government system is segregated and uh, you know, differentiated in many ways and uh, we don't have quality for everyone. So when this was being done, the World Bank came in and it pushed two of our best provision states after Kerala Tamil Nadu and Himachal are the two states where the provisioning had been very good, uh, at least in terms of schools and teachers uh, in the country. So, they deliberately, these two states were taken, pushed into Pisa, and I had predicted what's going to happen, you know, and they came second last. Happened then was there was a lot of chest beating. Uh, I remember, I cannot forget this TV uh, panel in which Rukmini Banerjee was sitting next to Abhijit Banerjee uh, from J.Pal, and she actually said the R.T.E. should be put should be thrown into the dustbin, should be junked into a dustbin. So that is the kind of position they have taken, uh, and that it's very clear that you know uh, they so there's a lot of shaming of the public system. So you know they can conveniently talk in different voices. On the one hand, they work with governments. But they get a lot of policy leverage in that right now through Central Square Foundation, which is another venture capitalist. I mean, the founder is a venture capitalist and who now almost they fund and in a way buy up a lot of small uh, educational initiatives, even at a small level, even at a district, at districts, even at state levels, all the funding comes from there because now uh, in this government, especially a lot of the, progressive groups that were working and funded by innovation projects in the ministry are not being funded so central square foundation has now got an ecosystem of funding a lot of state and a lot of ground interventions but it's a it's a venture capitalist i mean so it's a philanthropic capitalism that which means that they expect that charity also should be uh, uh, should work on the same methods like capitalists do look for returns and so learning outcomes is something in which they peg their work i mean the advocacy is pegged on results and learning outcomes and that now has become now has become part of the international discourse and that is what is extremely extremely uh, worrying for us for all those who for decades fought for equitable quality inclusive education for everyone because uh, now this and what is most damaging is, is that uh, the the basis for testing uh, pratham has now uh, almost pushed to the corner when it assumes that testing you know you have to test test and test so the work will all the entire ecosystem it's a huge network of organizations which follow the same thinking, which follow the kind of corporate management model in which testing becomes crucial for them. So you cannot, there are no other ways of looking at what is happening except for testing. So that again is damaging. Um, Pratham has now pushed for this about uh, testing and in it has got a lot of space in various uh, states because they come with funds. I'll tell you what I have seen now, I mean, After 1986, our national education policy came in 2020 in the middle of a COVID. Everything was locked down. Everything was closed. Without a parliamentary deliberation, without any discussion, it comes right then. So again, you know, why is it timed for that? And it writes in the policy that there will be, so everything it writes contradicts the Right to Education Act everything that it proposes goes against the Right to Education Act, including the fact that there can be uh, all kinds of multiple models, which means you can have open school, the national open school, you can have private players coming in. uh, And it says that there will be no focus on inputs. I mean, I've never heard of a national policy saying there will be no focus on inputs because it's trying to woo and trying to attract private players which it calls philanthropic players you know philanthropic uh, partners so this word philanthropic now is for anyone who can bring money uh, because the charity doesn't have to I mean the money is not really in terms of charity it's more like an investment and uh, so they are also being told that you know this is like you're investing it's it's an entrepreneur uh, model in which you're investing and uh, plus it uh, it says that uh, children can uh, can be detained that's that kind of pressure was coming in even earlier even though when our policy the act had come in the ministry had said we will not detain anyone because no research tells us that a child can be more motivated if detained and but this the delhi government uh, which close works very closely with Pratham and Central Square Foundation and Teach for India. They have an MOU. They they started off with an MOU with these organizations, and the advisor was Karthik Murliyaran, who is a clear private privatization advocate. Uh, you know, based in the U.S., but all his research is completely on random control trials. And I have encountered him in a planning commission uh, working group meeting, in a steering committee meeting, where he came and said that all our research in uh, Telangana, in one state in South India, shows that it doesn't matter. I mean, children's achievement is not impacted by teachers' qualifications. So it just doesn't matter. You know, this was after the right to education had just come in. I mean, I remember being so shocked to hear this. And he was the only study, the only person who was brought in. So one, of course, uh, I protested saying that this is motivated, that only one particular research is being brought before us. Uh, And that too, when a right to education has come in, you're telling us that teachers' qualifications don't matter because that was an important part of the right to education. Have well-qualified teachers for everyone and then uh, the secretary of education also got you know i mean all of us then really got very uh, very uh, sort of alarmed by these uh, by pushing these studies in the planning commission and he said uh, we also find the textbooks don't matter so i said then you know this is what they mean by no inputs inputs are not important so uh, this is why the learning outcomes discourse for us is the most damaging in terms of equity is the most damaging in terms of a, 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 a system a social cohesion that that our school is supposed to bring in our diverse and stratified and disparate country in fact the right to vote when it came to us just at the time of uh, you know when the constitution came and soon after independence are uh, the 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 visionaries of our country the founders ambedkar gandhi everyone said that we will have a right to vote for everyone even though many countries didn't have the right to vote for women or for poor people and things like that you know switzerland women they they got their right to vote after 1970 just to remind ourselves how radical this decision was but they said that we understand Uh, ambedkar said that maybe we can get equity at some time, maybe we can get liberty at some time, but where will fraternity come from? And so for this, education has to be the basis for people to live together, work together, know each other, come to know each other's differences and appreciate the diversity and the disparities of our country. So for us, education is that. It is trying to have a democratic And a secular, a country where we understand each other and we know each other because we don't otherwise when we come from different uh, uh, from different backgrounds, different socializations, different beliefs. Mm -hmm. So this for us has been the basis of our work in education. And this is being totally now, uh, uh, you know, dismantled and this is being Mm -hmm. now pushed in, in a very damaging way that we find because the Delhi government, as I said, which is mm-hmm. completely under these organizations, it segregates children. It discriminates them. It takes a terrible test. You can't do division with two digits. Sorry, you're in, a, in a, another level. Now, because there's pressure, there's a case going on in the Delhi High Court which has questioned them on this basis. And even teachers have said, we can't call them different names and... No teacher wants to be pushed to a section which is supposed to be the weakest, you know, because teachers say, then our grading is being done because we we have the most challenging students. So why should we do that? We want a mixed group. And uh, so uh, Delhi, but Delhi is still doing that. It's still uh, doing level one and level two. It tries to show that, but it tries to test them. And it used to go to town telling us that teaching at the right level, you know, so they decide what the level is. They decide on a very flimsy test, which has been their background. You know, the tests they take are questionable. And yeah, so, uh, this, uh, uh,
0: so this teaching at the right level, for, for listeners who are not familiar with this, could you elaborate on yeah. how uh, this came to be a, like a policy for the Delhi government?
1: And now for the world. Because oh, now gone. they, uh, it, it's an organization called T A R L, which they they say they've done a lot of work in uh, other countries, including Kenya. Uh, so uh, teaching, you know, they started by saying that uh, J P L, the uh, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Dufflo had gone to the Delhi government and told them that we have done our research. And found, uh, based on uh, controlled random trials, that uh, segregating children at different levels of learning, the weaker, slower ones in in a different section, giving them a different pedagogy and a different exam. We must remember that. The exam is also dumbed down and diluted. So they have gone to... Was this before or after they won the Nobel Prize? They came before. Before. It happened in Delhi before. But when they won the Nobel Prize, Delhi government went to town. You know, they said, oh, well, they had told us and we listened to them and they got a Nobel Prize. And so, you know, no one can question what we are doing. So it gave them legitimacy because we had been questioning them right through from the day first day, because uh, my students teach in Delhi government schools, you know, and our research happens in Delhi government schools. Delhi University works very closely with Delhi government schools, but this government has kept all academics of Delhi and India's best academic institutions. Many of them are in Delhi, but this government kept them out. So one of the ways of functioning is you keep out the academics. You keep out any criticism that might come, you know, and you become, so they're volunteers who are just fresh students from, who might have done well in masters or something like the Teach for India, the Teach for America model. It's the same thing that you take volunteers, they devise curriculum. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's literally like an anti, uh, you know, it's, it's a model, which is now gaining where you would sort of keep, Intellectuals out, and now you know what to do. So it's almost bringing in a kind of anti intellectualism, anti expertise, and we, with our enthusiasm, can do much better than experts can. So uh, uh, it began with an economist, with the economists who were telling us how to do pedagogy. And when we questioned and said the children don't learn this way, when you label a child, and they used to label them as slow learners and give a name in Hindi, which was different from the word for talented, they gave a different name, Uh, we said the child can never be motivated and the teacher cannot be motivated if she has only a group of students and she's told that, you know, don't do more creative things, do only the rote learning, do only the basics. So this word of basics, this word of foundational, again, comes from the same thinking that for some people, for something you can just focus on the basics, on the foundational. As if, and in this policy, uh, they claim when they say uh, that uh, foundational literacy and numeracy has got a major place, basically, they're saying up to age eight. One, they're saying that you integrate the, the uh, early learning program, which in our uh, system is called the, inter, uh, the ICDS program. You know, it is a program for young children for nutrition. It's a preschool kind of a program. Huge program, a very big program, probably one of the world's largest programs in terms of early children's nutrition. The education component is weak, but instead of strengthening that, they have integrated that with primary years, with primary school class, three classes of a uh, primary school. You see, so now what they're saying is that here only do basic literacy and basic numeracy. A child. Up to class eight, learns much more than basic literacy and basic numeracy. A child, given the opportunity, is asking questions and knowing about the world much more than what is called basic. So this minimalistic reductionist system which is being proposed, we know that private schools and elite private schools are not going to go by it. It's mostly for the public system because... Elite private schools, are very they, their children come from very elite pre-primary schools also. You know, so that is a different model. That doesn't apply. So uh, saying that you do only this is meant to uh, make sure that you have functional literacy and numeracy. And then what they were doing is that they're still doing, Delhi government, that after class grade nine, the first board exam comes at grade 10. Before that, they push out the so-called weak learners or slow learners into an open school system where they just, you don't know where they go. Because open school is just doing it on your own. You get the materials, you study at home, or maybe there's a private coaching center which helps you. But uh, the school has, so when the school results come out, the school board results come out, you're not there. So. All the children who you think are going to spoil your results are out. And this is being done ruthlessly. So we had been questioning both these things, uh, the segregation and even teachers question. And one of the Delhi teachers, when she questioned this in a social audit online conference meeting, uh, she was transferred to a school 60 kilometers away as a posting, as a punishment posting. So they punish teachers if they even say the teacher only said this is not the way I have been trained as a teacher. I have not been trained to discriminate between children and to separate them and teach them differently. She said only this, and her senior, the senior most official of the Delhi Government, I mean the person, the the person in the Directorate who gave her, who called her, gave her a clip of this, of this audio said, listen to what you say from this minute to this minute, and then tried to tell her that this is why you're being punished. So uh, you know this is the way they've been operating. Some years back, I knew students near Dell University schools, because our our BA internship used to happen in those government schools. And they didn't have a maths teacher for two years. And they failed in the maths, rightly so. The maths curriculum is not very good, and neither would they have a teacher, so they failed. And uh, the Delhi government then threw them out after two years and said, you go into the open school. They struggled on their own. They worked on their own. They passed, after these two years, they passed the class 10, came back to their school, said, admit us to class 11. The principal said, no. I went with them because I knew some of them and I knew the school. I went with them. The principal just told me, madam, let them not waste their time. for." For the first time in my life, I heard anyone tell a child that you'll waste your time if you want to do class 11 and 12. You know, so this was the thinking, this was the understanding. How was this equitable? How is this democratic? Children of poor, the poor staff, the staff of my university, they were being thrown out. And then uh, said, gave me a card and said, please, you call this vocational training center. And that is where they should go. So this was the model. You throw them out. Even if they pass class 10 by the open school, don't promote them to join your school back. So how is that pro-student? How is that a democratic system? How is that a system which was looking at equity? It was not. It was dumbing down some things, sorting them out very early in grade three, sorting them into different uh, 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 systems, and then telling them where their place is moving them out so that your results don't get bad and you want to show, and you spend millions of rupees on front page advertisements to show what your board results are, and then you don't even bother because many of these children, thousands go into the open school, and uh, even a right to information, uh, you know, um, information that journalists might get is that maybe 5%, 10% might pass. We don't know what happens to them. So this is like, just throw them out.
0: Professor Ampal, so given this very grim backdrop and with the p- proliferation of RCT style of so-called science-based or evidence-based approach to education, what then do you think can be the way forward in terms of how we do the so-called evidence-based research in
1: education? Uh, I mean... I don't think that we have to do evidence-based education the way it's being propagated. We have many ways of uh, looking at how children are learning, helping children learn, qualitative observations, uh, portfolios. I mean, we've worked on authentic assessment Mm -hmm. and uh, done that and seen that when uh, you do that assessment, which gives children a sense of purpose. And a, a, a student of mine did her PhD on that on doing assessment for mathematics, where those children who might be getting 10 out of 100 by the traditional method, but they volunteer to be part of this, they do tasks which are assessment tasks and they feel a mo- they feel motivated because they get a sense of purpose. They know why they're doing it. They're not doing it just to get some answer. you know. And that sense of purpose of the task, which can be demanding tasks, which was also in one school, uh, keeping all the school records for the midday meal, Done by grade eight students themselves without any teaching. So I'm just saying, learning for a purpose and being assessed for that. We know that it gives you a sense of agency, and uh, children go beyond what they might have done. They they had started with us when they didn't, they couldn't calculate the average of five numbers. They didn't care and they couldn't do it, but when they were doing some tasks which had meaning for them. They were doing things that went beyond what the school knew. They even came to know that the agency which was sending them the meals was showing a much higher number than the school meals that were coming to their school. And this had not been recorded earlier. So I'm just saying that assessment and following children's learning, one, of course, give them a good environment to learn. Give them a creative environment to learn uh, with a lot of autonomy, both for the teacher. Right now, teachers don't have autonomy. How will children have autonomy? So give them that uh, system. We work like that uh, all our lives, you know, in public systems. But right now, those same public systems in the last 15, 20 years have completely changed track. I mean, I must tell you that I went because one state invited me at this time some months back when they're making their uh, state curriculum framework and said because I was involved with the national curriculum framework last time in 2005 and the textbooks that were made at the national level. So I went out of that uh, feeling of uh, involvement, but I was shocked. I was shocked because one, they, they were completely new people in the State Council of Educational Research and Training, so this organization... Well-intentioned, but no not much understanding. They were they've been posted there very new. And there were so many so-called partners of this government institution. And the partners were corporate foundations. And you name it. You name the corporate foundation and they were partners. I mean, there was a foundation called Sterlite Foundation which is known for mining and, and and protests against the mining that they're doing in different parts of the world. And they were there, which have been no background in education. So I'm just saying that corporates now are, because of our new laws of income tax exemption and the corporate social responsibility, that a certain amount you have to, for, the, for those corporates which are eligible, and they have a certain return, they must invest that amount in, certain schemes, in certain social, uh, which is listed, in what areas you can invest. Now, uh, so so we know that there are almost 25% or more of our corporate foundations which are eligible for corporate social responsibility have made their own foundations. So you can see that. You can see the vested interest and you can see what it means, how now they influence policy because they bring in the money, which the states may not have. And they come with money. So now the states think that if there's a partner who's coming, basically they're coming with money. And because the money comes, then they have a say in what is being done. I know one uh, very well-known foundation, uh, which is uh, now working because then they look at their roots, Their, their family roots are in a particular area in a district. So they ask the state to have full access to that district. So even when researchers cannot enter a school or being discouraged to do uh, you know, very critical work or observations in schools, we are finding, in fact, even in Delhi, our best researchers are finding it difficult to do researches in school uh, because they don't get permissions that easily. Or they make the teacher sit there when the teacher's talking to children. you know? So it's that kind of a, a situation. But this is another state. And they because they say that their family comes from there, they, they pour in a lot of money, but they have full access and they are uh, taking in, they are employing researchers because they want PISA-like tests, even in elementary school. So they're preparing for PISA on their own in that district. So that's what I'm saying, that the kind of neoliberal uh, framework has changed because of this complete corporatization and also as pratham might be working with public schools but uh, central square foundation a close partner supports private schools privatization and low cost privatization they brought in bridge academies uh, you know into india for the first time and uh, all this thing about low cost privatization is another story but one thing that is most damaging is that and this is what the gem the report the unesco report says uh, in um, I think in box four point five that uh, India has become a laboratory for results-based financing in education. So India is now being claimed to be a laboratory because of all this. Because a lot of these corporates now are, uh, are coming in, and not just that, it is called the social impact. I mean, they're different names. Like they call it, um, you know, quality education India developing development impact bond. So there are bonds now which the investor can buy. And based on outcomes, you have to constantly keep showing the results because the investors come with that money and they call that, they call social impact bonds with the GEM. It's so uncritical. It doesn't even differentiate between these things. It's talking about, it says that uh, uh, the choice of providers with a track record is what is. And that's why Kevalya Foundation, Gyan Shala, Pratham Infotech Foundation, Pratham has many different versions of it. And all these are brought in because of their track record. And Gyan Shala is running private schools, low-cost private schools in in Gujarat, in Ahmedabad. So there's no discrimination, whether you work with a public system or you work with a private system. And this is what is being blurred. The complete difference between an entrepreneur or a volunteer or an academic, which is fighting uh, to support the government for a humanist perspective, for a democratic, everyone is clubbed together under non-state actor. I'm sorry, I don't want to be called a non-state actor if all these others are non-state actors. And I worked all my life with the state, uh, but uh, as an academic, as a
0: non-paid voluntary academic. Thank you so much, Anita, indeed, uh, for sharing your views with us today. It is truly fascinating to learn about your long-term involvement in the inclusive and equitable quality education agenda. Um, You talked about the context in which the so-called non-state actors came to play an increasingly a dominant role in the Indian education landscape since the turn of this century. Um, In fact, uh, the Global Education Monitoring Report uh, 2021-2022, this report celebrates Pratham and the Central Square Foundation as non-state actors that have contributed to the Indian government's quote-unquote strategic shift of focus away from inputs towards foundational learning this very positive assessment of the role uh, played by Pratham and the Central Square Foundation This very one-sided take on their role raises questions about the role of UNESCO as a guardian of the right to education and the coordinator of SDG4 on inclusive and equitable quality education and lifelong learning opportunities for all. Um, with this note, uh, I would like to conclude uh, today's episode. Uh, Since we still have so much to cover, we will continue this conversation in the next episode. Uh, Thank you for joining us today and see you next time.